fellow Blue Earther and welcome to another podcast. I'm Laura Nesbitt and this week my guest is Welsh wildlife biologist, broadcaster, filmmaker and conservationist Lizzie Daly. Lizzie travels all over the world conducting research and making wildlife films, all whilst documenting her adventures on social media. She tells me while platforms such as Instagram are amazing for reaching more diverse audiences than traditional media, there is a dark side too. We also discuss possible solutions to bridge the gap between academia and the media and how to make important discussions about our planet more accessible to everyone. Hey Lizzie, lovely to have you on the pod today. Hello, lovely to be here. Thank you for having me on. We're really looking forward to having you at Blue Earth Summit this year. To recap, what did you do for last year's Blue Earth Summit? Last year I was talking about how we can adventure with purpose. I think like so many of us now, we are we have that real appetite to get out there, to see things, to explore, to feel, to understand, to learn. But the big challenge now is to also balance that, I guess, with the plethora of things that are happening with our planet in terms of you know, society, social issues, climate issues. You know, I was talking about some of my experiences, good and bad, in how I try and adventure with purpose or ways that I've learned how to adventure with purpose because it's so important in this day and age. What would be your advice to someone who, you know, hasn't had much experience going out on adventures with purpose? Um, Should they start small or do you think you should have a lofty goal and then work backwards? The main thing that comes with a really good expedition or adventure is almost like the, the, the reason why you're going. And I guess that's one of the most important questions to ask yourself before you even start the planning of logistics or or learnings from other people or your training, or you may be researching the wildlife, whatever it may be. Really, what is the reason as to why you're going on that on that mission or that journey? I think more and more now, um, you know, especially, especially in wildlife filming and wildlife broadcasting in, in my world, absolutely more people are are having to ask that question just because we don't have the luxury of being able to kind of go off and, and just explore the world and fly across the other side of the world or take big teams into remote places. So first of all, think about what the, the main output of that of that mission will be. But and, but for people starting out as well, I think it is a bit harder to, you know, write down on a piece of paper this ambitious project and then deliver something which will have an impact such as 100,000 views, lead to a positive campaign to save an area of rainforest and everyone's happy. You know, it's, it's not always that linear. Sometimes it could be as simple as, okay, I want to make a difference today to somebody's somebody's life or someone in in my life who may not be able to see the natural world in in the same way that I do. So I'm going to take them out to the beach. I'm going to take them for a snorkel. Even something as simple as that can go a really long way in kind of changing somebody's influence and perception of the world. Um, I had it recently, it's slightly different, but um, accessibility in in nature is is really important. And uh, I took my, I actually took my mum to Shetland I wanted her to see the the orca uh, feeding along the the Shetland coast because um, she has MS, so it's really hard for her to get out and about. But it's one of the few places in the world that I've seen orca. You know, I've been very lucky to see them in New Zealand, Norway, Antarctica. But to see them on our coastline, you know, 20, 30 metres away, and for her to be able to do that is just something that's really special. 
that is impact. That is making a difference. That is showing, I guess, a, a new person something brilliant and wonderful about a natural world. And, you know, don't be too hard on yourself when it comes to a really big, ambitious projects. Start small and then focus on what your plan or your outcome will be. I saw the family photo actually on your Instagram and um, uh, yeah, it made me feel a bit emotional because, you know, you can go on solo adventures and they can be amazing, but sharing them with people that you love or sharing them with people who you know might never get to experience that again or ever is, is really special. And ultimately, it is about the natural world, but it is about people as well. And and we're, we have quite a few broken broken ideas of of who can get out, get out into nature. Still, you know, it could be could be racial injustice, but could could be societal, could be even in Wales. You know, there's there's big gaps in kind of class systems as well. You know, income and there's real poverty in pockets across Wales. And I think that's something we just haven't addressed yet. We haven't we haven't got right. And we need to kind of empower these people to show, you know, this is your coastline. You have sharks, dolphins, incredible areas to protect on your doorstep. This is this is your home. This should be um something that you can enjoy, explore, and want to protect as well. So yeah, there's so much, so much work to do, basically. <laughs> do you prefer adventures on land or at sea? On the sea, yeah. It's always something new whenever I'm out on a boat. By the way, I get really seasick, first and foremost. I have to put that in because everyone's like, oh, you're a hardy seagoer. No, I'm sick most of the time I go out on a boat. Problem is, it's where all the good stuff is. So I end up having a bit of a wobble, let's say. And then, you know, you get you get uh, the reward of seeing three shark species in one day or, you know, getting an up-close encounter with orca or seeing, you know, shifting shoals of fish. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a bit of um it's a bit of a balance because these environments are often the more harsh, but I think with that comes uh, real beauty as well. Do do you prefer sea or land? Oh wow, you're the first person to ask me a question on a pod. I'm not sure I like how that feels. <laughs> uh, no, I'm absolutely I'm a sea dweller. You know, I get scratchy if I don't swim every other day. So uh, yeah, even throughout the winter, I need to sort of get my fix. Although I don't really get the highs anymore a decade after still doing it sometimes even in February when the sea is below five I'm a little bit like oh this isn't really giving me what I thought it would yeah I knew the feeling (laughs) so you document a lot of your adventures on Instagram how important do you think it is to share images and documentary with the younger generation so important. So you mentioned Instagram there is just kind of, it's just one of the platforms. And it's funny because I, I feel that I reach different people on Instagram, perhaps the people that I wouldn't reach, say, through broadcasting or even YouTube as a whole different audience. Again, very important. I'd say there is a real fire in the bellies of Instagrammers, if you like, who are using that platform to to showcase nature, wildlife, and and the beauty of it. I mean, a lot of people don't enjoy social media. A lot of people have their irks about platforms like Instagram, and they have algorithms. And I totally agree. I think sometimes you're shouting into this echo chamber that's just really frustrating. We're not all you want to do is post pictures of penguins. <laughs> At the same time, you can post a 10 second video of a behaviour or something interesting, a, a new species that somebody hasn't seen before, and that. Can can get tens or thousands of views on likes and shares and whatever and it does make you think oh gosh the impact that I've just had with that tiny little post 
is tenfold. You know, you don't need to, I guess, lean on the giants such as the, you know, the BBC, the big broadcasters to create that impact, to create those conversations. The only thing I would say about Instagram is it's a bit of a um, bit of cowboy town, let's just say, because you have to sift through the facts, the anecdotals, the potentially made up the sensationalized information that you get with a platform like that. It's a bit of a lawless platform. Uh, People can post whatever they like, whenever they like. Most recently, I'd say the issue has been for me, because I'm a drone operator myself, and the drone use and, and the impact on wildlife has been a bit of an issue over and over again. Unfortunately, there's been big platforms that are sharing these majestic videos of flamingos flying off or primates swinging through the trees while an FPV drone is following it through the trees. Yes, it looks cool, but you are literally directly impacting the behavior and stressing out the wildlife as you go. And for somebody who isn't in the natural world or as a scientist background, they look at that and go, do you know what? That's beautiful. That's an amazing species. I didn't know that. But they don't know, I guess, the full story of videos like that and how how it encourages basically people to be a bit cowboy with how they fly drones and things. So it's got huge benefits for young people. I think I get really excited when I see something new, connect with new people on there, generate new conversations about climate or social or climate issues. But yes, yeah, so got to be taken with a massive pinch of salt. And when you are on Instagram, just maybe do do your due diligence as well now and again, just double check, fact check, look for science publications, things like that to pack it up. I guess it's quite important to be able to close the gap between academia, the science, the numbers, the facts uh, with the public who might not necessarily, you know, be interested in a career in academia and still wants to know about it. So do you think that it's fairly crucial that academics have a public presence? I find this one very subjective because not everyone wants to listen to a scientist or uh, wants to see a scientist um, go in depth about their research. Sometimes somebody wants to see an American with a really big personality who's very funny, tell them a really cool fact about an animal and that's it. That That's as far as it goes. At the end of the day, a lot of wildlife content and broadcasting and, and these documentaries that you make are to inspire, to connect, to educate, but ultimately also to entertain. In my personal opinion, yes, I would love to see more scientists in front of the camera. It's happening. There's definitely some really wonderful, influential people that are coming through. And that's mixed also with kind of different hats as well as photographers or Nat Geo explorers, things like that. So I would love to see more people in front of camera, but also... There is still this massive divide, I feel, between the science world and and media. And I think kind of I touched on it briefly with social media. I don't think we're quite there yet. And I, I do think the next kind of move when it comes to wildlife storytelling or um, documentary making about the natural world is to, is to really close that gap, as you say, and to try and kind of bring genuine, exciting publications to life as they come out, as they're used, you know, in really important next steps with climate discussions, protection of areas due to new species discovered, new behaviours discovered. You know, there's there's so much you can utilise from science. It absolutely underpins all the fundamentals, what we know about a natural world. We're just not quick enough at picking it up in the media in the right way, with the right voice to kind of push that forward and to give it the impact that it needs. I feel like there needs to be, a, as you said, this this middle framework, which is consistent, it's thorough, 
and it's in place so that you almost bring down the walls of both sides, right? You say to the media, can you stop sensationalizing, title grabbing, and also just looking for a quick story and work with academia, which by the way, is absolutely vital to all your understanding anyway. And then in the same vein, bring down the wall in the academic world and say, sure, I get it. You may not want to kind of be pushing media. Let's train you up to have those skills because ultimately it's your work which should be shouted to the tops of the rooftops across in a way that is going to have that genuine impact and not just sit in a publication. And, you know, it may get lots of reads, but it's it's in this insular way, which doesn't reach the wider wider public. So if those two came together, I think I think we'd have a winner. Do you think that events um, like Blue Earth have a place in in connecting the dots? Yeah, definitely. The thing that I loved about Blue Earth Summit last year was that it was a real good in-between, not just for kind of science and those who work in media or part of brands or business owners or charities, but it also brought up in quite a lot of the talks, it talked about kind of political influence as well. And it was framed in a way that fit into the bigger picture, which I think you know, sometimes we get caught up on our small story or, or uh, one project that we've done. But I heard quite a few times about the shifts that we are seeing, our planetary shifts, and how we fit that into a bigger climate issue. You know, Tim Schmidt from Eden Project, a brilliant talk. Hugo from Surface Against Sewage, who is tirelessly campaigning, you know, against sewage and our waters, but just so much more. He's so inspiring. I went to one of the panel discussions as well. I believe there's quite a few brands there, but they were talking about, you know, the Paris Agreement and the upcoming COP26 as well. I just feel like it's a really good web, if you like, bringing all these different voices together. I genuinely felt Blue Earth Summit feeling really pumped, uh, feeling really like I you know, connected with a lot of people. There was big questions asked and there was lots to kind of come out of Blue Earth Summit, which... I'd love to see kind of propel then onto, well, this year. (laughs) Speaking of COP, you were on the um, UN climate change stage, is that right? Yes. And you talked about um, youth collective action. So is there anything that you're hoping will happen between now and and the next COP? Each of the days was split up obviously into different areas. Um, You know, so for example, we did have a youth day, which for me was one of my kind of absolute favourite days, an energy day, a finance day. And every day, basically, we interview decision makers, um, world leaders or, or policy makers about change that they're making in their area or discussions that are going on or commitments made during COP26. And yeah, you're right. I think the most inspiring thing that came out of, of that experience was chatting to the youths as uh, individuals like Achana Sarang and Ernest Gibson. So Achana Sarang, she's actually working for the youth. She's on the youth board for the, the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change. And one of the things that we look to at COP26 are these big kind of documents which talk about the commitments and whether they're met or, or how that's kind of put together. And there is a youth version. So there's, it's called COI26. And that for me was the takeaway in terms of looking out for next steps and things to look out for is actually the impact statement that they made as part of this. I believe it's available online somewhere. I'll have to find it and send you the link. But um, it covers everything from Indigenous people's uh, pledges or or requests, if you like. Um, There was a big, strong push for young people actually being the leaders of climate action and not, I guess, the afterthought or like the victim of climate policies that were discussed to no end. And I think for, for me, like following Archana Sarang um, and Ernest since then has been really, really fascinating to see how they are tirelessly working to, to I guess, push 
the youth and young voices in that way. And that that is one thing, you know, that, that was a day in a, a week of interviewing all these people. It was quite a sobering experience because then you've got this kind of contrast of everyone outside on the streets that have all the right messages and all that kind of on the nose questions that I was so so inspired by and it's so important to have the two I believe those inside and outside of COP I think we'll see more of the right voices moving forward or at least I hope we'll see more of the right voices moving forward in future discussions about genuine decisions on our climate you know if you don't work in sustainability or anything to do with the earth I guess or you don't pick up newspapers about it or it, it or you don't follow people on social media you know how are you how are you meant to know about it and also given that we've been in the pandemic you, you don't socialize as much so it's it's sort of like how do you keep up with these things unless you are constantly tapping into social media and the media and even then the media drip feeds you what they th- think I guess buys magazines and newspapers so <laughs> as well on that point that is such a good point so it actually came up as part of the conversations I had with people like Ochana and and the Koi work because they were like look you are producing this high level broadcasting and especially in the UK here we are we have an opportunity to frame all these like huge conversations about the decisions on our planet massively important but there was a real level of inaccessibility and I was the same like the the experience I had inside the blue the blue zone Sometimes I was just like, hello, I'm just talking to the people inside the blue zone. And I, then I'd go home and I'd go on the news and social media and it didn't reflect the conversations that were going out. Sure, all the conversations that I, I was having were streamed onto um, a website. But as you say, unless you were on that, that UN website all day long, every day, following it meticulously, you're not going to be part of all of those important, important things. And actually what Koi uh, highlighted, which is so true, is that how many individuals, especially, you know, in the Southern Hemisphere, how many individuals have access to a laptop, a computer, Wi-Fi 24-7 to watch all these conversations? Do they speak English? Is this being translated into different languages? How much of this information is being made accessible to the white people? It was an unbelievable experience to be part of. And, you know, if anyone said, would you do it again? 100% I'd do it again. Um, but I would love to see more of that. And I think you're spot on by highlighting that as an actual issue and how I think it's a massive area of improvement moving forward. We need to better our accessibility to these conversations and these decisions. Linking back to accessibility, I mean, I'm white, I'm privileged, I have access to a laptop and an internet connection and I'm at university. I mean, it doesn't really get much more privileged than that. But I think, you know, even once you have accessibility, having the means to then make a difference is also sort of like the next stage up of the hierarchy. So you can learn about all the things that you need to do. But if you live in a low income background or you come from a really deprived community and you just don't have the means to make a difference, you know, by default, you become part of, you're still sort of a part of the problem and not the solution. And sometimes I I think about it and it's just so overwhelming. I don't know, I wouldn't know how to even start solving that. Yeah, I think a lot of like, a lot of young people feel that way as well. I mean, it's important that you you obviously, uh, and I'm the same, by the way, um, being a white middle-class woman living in the UK, you know, from, from Germany, from the UK. But I think that feeling is felt by a lot 
a lot of a lot of youth and of course we we have absolutely no idea how that spreads globally um but i think that's why creating the space and almost like switching the way that we approach these decisions or conversations is so is so valuable um a few of those conversations happen outside and inside of cop where actually you know number of um grants were given to uh, indigenous communities and individuals to attend cop to be there so their voice can be heard but like you say it's that can't be applied to everyone and and until we see that kind of shift um it's going to be really hard to for, for that to be something to be applied to the general public because a lot of us pe- feel that way a lot of us feel like are we doing enough really if you could deliver your dream workshop at blue earth summit what would it be I think ultimately it's about inspiring and educating. I mean, th- those those are the two things that you want to do with any any workshop or talk. That 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 would be the dream to have somebody leave a workshop and go. Do you know what? I didn't know that. That was amazing. I'm going to then look that thing up, or go um, like, wow, I I can do that. I think with, with all these things, if you can break down as many barriers as possible, then that's that's brilliant. I mean, even when it comes to wildlife film, I think so many people want to get now into wildlife film or be storytellers or whatever even scientists but there are barriers that still exist could be gender could be for some of the financial barriers that we've already discussed could be um something simple as imposter syndrome mental health like all of these things i think if you're able to break down a barrier just by being passionate being kind of having a talk or workshop that's educational i mean that that for me would be the dream to be honest there are some talks that I deliver and not everyone wants to hear about prehistoric fish or how unbelievable the Welsh coast is but if one person leaves that talk and they're like this is cool I love it let's go then I'm happy with that hopefully more than one person will but I hear that Wales is the new Cornwall just without the uh the crowds of people so maybe your talks on Wales will be picking up interest in the next decade. It's terrifying when uh, people make that comparison uh, just because well you know I'm sure with the, the the amount of people that go to Cornwall and um, the number of people are filling up let's say Cornwall so yeah enjoy Wales but maybe just also leave it alone a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to also have your own stage at Blue Earth and you were to run a panel, who would be on your panel and what would you discuss? Okay, like ideal people on the, like, on the planet. Are we talking like big? Yeah, we're talking big here. Let's go big. Let's shoot for the moon. <laughs> okay, to bring in the crowds, I'd bring Leonardo DiCaprio and I'd want to talk about the importance, <laughs> just because he's massive on climate issues, but I'd want to talk about the importance of campaigning or discussing environmental issues in other industries. I think that that's what that's a bit of a theme this year. There's a few talks and things coming up and actually a lot of the panels or discussions or Q&As that we're discussing on setting up are with those who are outside of the wildlife film industry. That being said, I'd bring in Sir David Attenborough, obviously. I'd also bring in Johan Rockstrom, of course, climate scientist. He did a documentary recently with David Attenborough and he is a huge, I mean, he's one of the few examples of, how a scientist, he's a climate scientist and he's huge when it comes to, I guess, um, publicly talking about the next steps for our planet. He's famous for setting out these planetary boundaries in a way that's been very digestible to the general public. So Johan Rockström would be on there because he's he's to the point, he's factual, he's, he's a great scientist. So, And then um, I'd also like to bring in, there's an organisation who I learned about last year. They're an NGO, they're called If Not Us Then Who?, and they have a number of voices um, from Indigenous communities 
who speak up on their, their country's issues or changes that they like to see. There's one individual called Nina Gualinga. Uh, she's an international advocate for the rights of women, Indigenous peoples and climate justice. I've heard her doing a few bits before and I think she's brilliant. So it's a good question. You can imagine the conversation that, that that these people would have. And you can also imagine that Blue Earth Summit wouldn't just sell out, but people would be, you know, <laughs> like knocking at the door. Please, can I come in? <laughs> There was such a good network of scientists, um, you know, big voices, environmentalists, business owners, and a real collaborative feel. So I think if I was to do a dream panel, it'd be from voices who who come from lots of different backgrounds. Those are just some individuals. (laughs) Collaboration is definitely key to making these events, you know, sustainable in terms of longevity, surviving, but also just interesting, interesting to attend. So final question on the pod today, what is your blue thread? I've been lucky to grow up kind of near the coastline, being here in Wales. It's kind of been my my everything, really. Uh, it's more than just a place that gives me so much when it comes to mental relief. In my quiet moments, it's a place where I feel very grounded. It's a place where I can have a great weekend with friends or learn new things or learn to dive or you know learn about the protection of you know one of the first marine conservation zones in Wales it's more than that it's it's a place that ultimately connects everybody on this planet and um continues to inspire and blow all of our minds and I think there is a bit of blue thread in everyone it's just it's just how much kind of you activate it if you like and I think for, for me the more I spend time in the ocean and the sea in whatever capacity the stronger that connection becomes. I think there's a lot to be said by actually just having a day out by the sea, in the sea, you know, along the coastline, whatever it may be, because I think it is in everyone. And for me, it's a, it's a really great way to showcase the wonder and beauty of our natural world, but also that there is so much to be done. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.